Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Thanks for listening, and be sure to click that subscribe button wherever you are hearing this podcast, and as always, it is free to subscribe. I have another pre-story for you today based on the request that I've had to include them once again. So let me know what you think about my pre-stories, whether I should continue them or not. Today I'm going to tell you a story about the Rat Pack. Now that's not to be confused with the Brat Pack. The Brat Pack was a group of young men and women actors and actresses in Hollywood in the early 1980s that did a group of movies. And the Brat Pack was actually in reference to the original Rat Pack. And the Rat Pack I'm referring to was a group of five entertainers that were all superstars in the world of singing, dancing, playing instruments, and comedy. They were widely known on stage for their live performances, on television, and in the movies. They were all truly megastars. There were five original Rat Pack members, and they are in no particular order. Frank Sinatra. Well, I put Frank first, and I'll tell you why. Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Joey Bishop, and Peter Lawford. The reason I put Frank first was there was absolutely no question that he was the leader of the Rat Pack, and his nickname became the Chairman of the Board. And as chairman, Frank was a major force in helping to integrate Las Vegas, which is what this pre-story is all about. At the time, Las Vegas, like most other American cities, was still, if not completely, segregated. Sammy Davis Jr. was the only African-American member of the Rat Pack, and I think without a doubt the most talented and accomplished by far. He could sing, dance, play multiple musical instruments, mostly known as a drummer, and had a great comedic timing. Even with all this fame, he was discriminated against in Las Vegas, as well as most cities in the United States. Frank found out about this firsthand after the Rat Pack was finally legitimately ensconced on the Vegas Strip as a long-term contract act. Frank asked Sammy, why Sammy never drank with the guys after the show or before the show, and why he never stayed near them on the strip. Supposedly, Sammy gave Frank a really long look of disbelief and said, Because I'm black, Frank, I can't eat, drink, or sleep anywhere near the Vegas Strip. It's segregated. Now, this alarmed Frank, and he went to the owners of the historic Sands Hotel, where the Rat Pack was performing and literally making history at the time. And Frank told them that the Rat Pack was leaving unless blacks were allowed to stay there and eat and drink at any establishments in the Sands Hotel. Well, the ownership pushed back, but the allure of keeping the revenues from the hottest act in America really swayed their thinking, and Sammy and other African Americans were allowed in the establishments from then on, but not without consequence. And there were lots of stories about how Frank 
did basically the same thing many times, and we'll get into that. In the mid-1950s, a number of hotels tried to block Sammy Davis Jr. from entering or staying or eating in their public restaurants. And once again, Sinatra was relentless and tireless in his demand for all entertainers to be treated equally and for all patrons to be treated equally. And his private insistence on fair treatment mirrored his onstage acceptance of a black entertainer and a Jewish comic as part of his retinue. So Frank was always looking at this inequality, trying to figure out why it was so, and did what he could in a small way, yet significant, culturally and in a societal way, to try to do his best to change it. Another entertainer, Lena Horne, a female African-American singer and entertainer, was the exception that really proved this rule. She was a favorite of mafia murderer and hotel operator Bugsy Siegel. Well, this is back in the day when the mob really ran and owned Las Vegas. Now, she was an African-American female entertainer, but she was allowed, at the insistence of Bugsy Siegel, to perform and stay at the Flamingo Hotel on the Vegas Strip. But, and this is chilling, after she checked out, the staff was instructed to burn all of her sheets, towels, and blankets. And when Sinatra escorted Lena Horne to the Ultra Swanky Stork Club on the Vegas Strip, he was told she could not be admitted. So Sinatra basically threw a little bit of a fit and threatened to leave and create a public stink in the media if she was not welcome. She was. She was admitted. And Sinatra refused to play at any club that did not admit audience members of any race. So Frank Sinatra really helped integrate Las Vegas in ways both private and public. And a lot of this information didn't come out until much later. So he wasn't grandstanding doing this for any kind of credit. Sinatra really made it cool to accept integration. In 1958, he wrote in Ebony Magazine, and I quote here, A friend to me has no race, no class, and belongs to no minority. My friendships are formed out of affection, mutual respect, and a feeling of having something in common. These are eternal values that cannot be classified. Now that sounds really great today, but you have to remember this was 1958. This was 10 years before the race riots. This was 10 years, maybe five or six years before the civil rights movement really started heating up. So for him to say those words publicly was a big deal. My own grandfather was a jazz musician who played an upright bass for many bands in the Springfield, Missouri area where I grew up, and he played from the 1930s through the 1960s when he passed away. And he played with many great musicians, and he used to talk a lot about it, and he told me a lot of stories. But I never heard him speak of playing with black or African-American musicians. They were just musicians. And I will never forget a memorable quote of his from my childhood. 
he would say, the bandstand was the first place truly integrated in the United States. I think that was true. All right, now on to introducing my guest. My guest today is my friend, Francis Livingston. He was an illustrator for many years and still does a limited amount of illustration, but over the years, he has shifted his focus to painting images for galleries. He's always been in several galleries at one time and is constantly preparing for the next one-person show or the next group show. He has silver medals from the Society of Illustrators New York and has been widely published and collected in both arenas of illustration and painting. He also shares my interest and enthusiasm for all things aviation and space-related. He, too, grew up during the genesis of the space program of the United States, incorporating the great race to the moon. Francis and I also built Estes model rockets and took our interest of space exploration to the skies of our small hometowns. We both launched countless rockets and, of course, both lost a few, due to winds aloft that we did not know were there. We watched as our small rockets were tragically swept away, never to be seen again, not by us anyway, or watched a few rockets burn on our bourgeois makeshift launch pads due to some unknown, untraceable, catastrophic failure. Francis has a deep curiosity of the history of things, and by that I mean the history of comics, illustration, painting, art history, American history, you name it. He is not only a student of history, but curious and a lifelong student of painting and drawing and learning all that he can to be the best that he can at his craft. Our conversation takes us from being a child in the state of Oklahoma, looking at comics with his father, to showing his comic portfolio to an inker from Marvel Comics at a Comic-Con, to meeting Jeffrey Catherine Jones at a young age and finding the desire to bridge the world of comic book art and illustration and painting. We also learn about his influences, the need and desire to enable reference photography to do something different than the actual photo image, and finding what he refers to as endless subject matter. It is my sincere pleasure, with great respect, I give you my good friend, Francis Livingston. Let's get into it. Francis, you and I both grew up looking at comics and enjoying them. So tell me what your experience was when you were young, enjoying comics. Well, it's interesting, Brent. The, the, um, um, I was born in 1953, so I didn't really read comics uh, right away, of course. But So it was basically toward the end of the 50s when I was reading comics. But my dad loved comics. He loved them. And, and he loved the funny papers or the, you know, the Sunday comics. And, and that's where I really, really started 
getting interested, looking at the artwork, um, and he would read them to me, and we would read them together, and we'd pass them back and forth. and And our favorites, our favorites were Pogo by Walt Kelly. He loved Pogo, and even though he was he was a Republican and conservative, he loved he loved uh, the writing in Pogo, and and Walt Kelly was much, very much a you know a liberal type of cartoonist and, and writer. Loved Little Abner, uh, Alley Oop, um, and our mutual favorite was Prince Valiant. And these were these were large, really wonderful uh, pages, huge uh, Sunday pages. At that time, do you think you were more interested in the pictures or the story or both? And you're talking about your, what, seven or eight years old? Yeah, exactly. Um, definitely, definitely the pictures. Um, but it's interesting because I, I drew and even, even my dad, who was not an artist by any means, but he would draw little cartoons for me and he would, it would, it, it was interesting because he had, he had, uh, these little stick figures he did, he did. And they would be, sometimes they would be army guys. Sometimes they would be cowboys and Indians. And, and they were, they were simple, little round shapes, little, little, you know, if, if somebody got shot, you, you'd put a, put a X or a cross in the, in, on the eyes. And he would, he would do a whole series of, of drawings. And I just, I just sit there and watch him and, and laugh. And it, it, it was, it was really funny. He enjoyed doing that. He really did. And, and so that that was really the beginning. I haven't I don't haven't thought about that for a long time. But that was really that was really the idea that because I you know I admired my dad and and that that was the idea that that he would uh, sit there pretty strong um, somewhat macho guy and sit there and draw draw little pictures. How much were how much did comics cost at that time? Do you remember? I remember what they cost the first time I bought one. So what do you remember? 10 cents. Yeah, there was 10 cents because there's always, if I wanted to buy a comic, it was like, hey, here's, here's a dime, right? That it was that kind of thing. Um, there were, I don't even remember in those days, whether there was, were the 25 cent annual thicker comics. It was a 10 cent. And I remember, I think it was sometime in the very early sixties when comics became 12 cents and that was like oh no you know that was that was the worst thing ever <laughs> that's what i remember my sister actually loved comics also and my dad would bring them home from the grocery store or we would go pick out what we wanted but they are always 12 cents and of course that made no sense you know back in the day right i i it, it was generally if i if i mowed lawns or i hmm, you know, I collect pop bottles. I do whatever I could, and then I, you know, I'd ask my dad for a little bit of change. The interesting thing was he never refused me because he he would he would drop me off at the Rexall drugstore, and uh, I'd, sometimes I'd see my 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 good buddy, my friend there, who liked liked comics also, and he uh, he'd come back and get me, and then I had this little bag of comics, and he would say, "What'd you get?" 
And then at that point, uh, I'd, I'd show him. And, and of course, he anytime I got a war book or a Western book, that not, he'd love that too because he was, you know, he was he was into that. And he was he was a World War II vet, and he it's, uh, it was he liked he liked those stories also. Do you remember reading Creepy and Eerie? And those were more like magazines. They were thicker, like a Cracked or a Mad magazine. And they probably had, I do remember the the thinner versions of those also. Uh, but do you, did you read things like Weird War Tales and Eerie and Creepy? Yeah, I did. That, now, that, that was a little bit later. Uh, I was, I, I'm... I can't remember the date exactly, but I think that was probably, I would say those started and somebody's going to probably correct me, but maybe 65, 66. I'm nodding my head. Yes. I'm in agreement with you. Uh, That's about when they came along. And of course there were so many great overlapping artists such as Jack Davis was working for mad and he did, uh, either creepy or eerie, or maybe both. And uh, Bernie Wrightson, and of course, people on this podcast have heard me talk about Jose Gonzalez many times, and these great, great pen and ink artists that were doing this artwork that was just blowing my mind at the time. Right, and uh, so so my timeline for being interested in comics, uh, you know, the creepy and eerie's came out when I was really in the thick of that, really loving comics, collecting. And, and I go back earlier than that to the early days of Spider-Man and, and some of those superheroes. And even even uh, another one that I loved was uh, Donald Duck and DuckTales and all that kind of stuff. All the, all the adventures of, of Scrooge McDuck. They were great because they were like serious adventures only with ducks and you can go back now and and reread them and they're 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 fun to read they're they're interesting it's so by the time creepy and eerie and some of those came out i was i had little bits and pieces of who some of these famous artists were and most some of those that you were talking about jack davis and some of those were from the ec comics days the entertainment comics of the early 1950s and those comics had had some other artists, one particular Wally Wood, another one, um, uh, Frank Frazetta, Alex Toth, uh, uh, Al Williamson, and uh, a group of others. And all of those artists, all of a sudden I started seeing in Creepy and Eerie, Blazing Combat, those, those, this was before. Oh, I forgot about yeah, Blazing, yeah, Blazing Combat. Combat. Yeah. Yeah. Blazing Combat was, was, uh, was interesting just because it was, it, it was, a, it was, it came out at a time when there was an anti-war movement <laughs> happening. And so I'm not sure how well it actually sold, but, uh, the, those, those EC artists all of a sudden seemed to reappear. I know they were doing stuff, but they reappeared and they reappeared doing high quality work. And all of a sudden, it was like, wow, that, that stuff is just un- unbelievable. Now, some of those other people, like Bernie Wrights and Jeff Jones and some of those others came along. They were sort of the second tier of artists that came, started coming of age in the early 70s. They were the new guys the new at guys. the time. The new guys, yeah, the new guys. But 
those guys, mm, you saw those, and you it gave a it gave a fresh new blood into the industry and a different approach to the work. They were kind of throwbacks to an earlier time too. They were it was it was kind of a weird mixture. Bernie Wrightson and Jeff Jones, um, M.W. Kaluta, those guys, and and other other artists. Yeah, there were a lot of younger artists that weren't years years before weren't able to get into the industry. It was kind of a closed industry. Comics were, and and so that that uh, all of a sudden those guys appeared, and so for me that was a I was a young artist wanting to do comics, and I was in art school. And I, it gave a possibility. It, I looked at those guys and I thought, well, wait, they're not that much older than me. And so it was, I thought, yeah, that's possible. I can, I can maybe do something. Did you care about the fact whether you were looking at a color comic or a black and white? Because I preferred the black and white, like creepy and eerie. And then when they started coloring things to me that, it didn't get in the way, but in my mind, it wasn't adding much. And I'm not saying that's true today or whatever, but man, I really liked that pure black and white. I liked the black and white a lot too. I, I The color, if it was good coloring and didn't get in the way of the, of the story, then it, it was, it was great. If it was bad, you know, there was, there was good and there was bad coloring and uh, you know, that's a, Fast forward to today, there's a lot of bad coloring, <laughs> and and that's I blame that on on the the world of digital and people people doing great black and white work and then and tone toned work and then all of a sudden they go yeah by by the way put some more tone on it and color the thing and it gets murky and muddy and and sometimes garish the old uh, the old comic book coloring was uh, actually very subtle in a lot of ways. And then if you go back, back to the newspaper days, a lot of the coloring in uh, the Sunday papers w- was actually really subtle. And some of it was actually very nice when you look at it these days. It's, uh, uh, it wasn't bright. It wasn't, uh, it was sort of an accent to the great drawing. But all those pages stood out it, it, as I got older and I started started collecting some work and seeing some of those original pages you realized how wonderful they were in black and white and so i went back to look at things even even when they were in color or or nowadays they're, they're reproducing a lot of that older work in black and white without the color and uh, very very spectacular in terms of its contrast and line work and sometimes the color just gets in the way when did you first decide Wow, comics! This is something maybe I want to do. Or was it? Was it? Was there a seminal experience that made you want to do that? Or was it gradual? Or did you just wake up one day and say, "I just have this thing I have to do"? No, it was gradual. It was definitely gradual. I, I, I like to draw. So it wasn't always comics. I would copy paintings. I would. Uh, I just draw things, so, so it wasn't it wasn't necessarily. Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw comics. It was actually. Where were you growing up at this time? I was in Edmond, Oklahoma. I met a met a friend in 
I actually didn't meet him until junior high, or now they call it middle school, but uh, that would be seventh grade. And this this guy was a tall guy. I was kind of a shorter shorter kid, and he was he liked music. He was he was, and I I'm, I'm trying to remember now how we actually met. I'm not sure. Uh, how well, how big a school was it? Were you in a, a super huge metropolis or no, middle it was, it was middle a, size? It was a suburban town north of Oklahoma City, so it was it, it had a college. But he lived actually, you know, it's kind of uh, almost cliche. He lived uh, on the other side of the tracks, <laughs> and so when we went to each other's ho- house, uh, we'd have to go across the railroad tracks, uh, one way or the other. And I just remember he and I both liked comics and we really were getting into buying these, these early marvels at the time. Uh, and then we started drawing our own comics because we thought, Oh, wouldn't that be cool? We, and we, we started making up our own characters and those kind of things. And that was, that was when I didn't really think of it as a profession as a kid. I didn't think, Oh, I got to do this. I just thought, Oh, this is fun. And it was a thing that was different than a lot of the other kids were doing, you know. And I like playing some sports and stuff, but I wasn't a sports guy. And I wasn't particularly good at a lot of academic stuff. I was okay. I was kind of what you might call average, a little bit higher average in terms of my studies. And but I loved history. I loved I loved reading and and so there was something about that idea of comics that set us apart and maybe that was the first time I sort of realized too that I'm, I'm I, I like to be a little bit apart from the rest of the crowd I didn't I I'm always I've always been that way I just haven't liked the idea of like oh here whole crowd's going one way I'd kind of like to go the other way so that's I remember I had my friend that like to draw comics with me, like you just described. And we were sitting at my kitchen table one day and we were working on the cover and this cover was going to be our character. And I can't even remember the name now. And our character was interacting with Dr. Strange and we worked and worked and worked and we, you know, put our blood, sweat and tears into this thing. And it was all said and done. We had misspelled strange we had left out the N, so it was Dr. Strag. <laughs> so that you're laughing at me. <laughs> no copyright issues then. Yeah. So we thought that's our new character. So we had a character named Dr. Strag. Dr. And, Strag. And just, it, it's because we couldn't spell. Well, I, I, re, I remember ours because we, we, we actually did imitate different characters, the different superheroes in the comics. But we imitated them in a different way. We didn't try to draw them realistically. In fact, I could I could sit here and I could draw this character for you right now. He, he, we called him Our Hero. That was it was Our Hero. That was the name of it. And and then and then within that we developed. You know, we took our version of Captain America, our version of uh, uh, Spider Man, whatever the costuming was, and and basically the the. Uh, the actual, uh, yeah, it's, it's clear as day right now. I could just, I could, it, it would come out right now. I'm drawing it in my head. It's a circle, kind of an egg shape. Within the egg shape, you do three quarters of the, another uh, egg shape within that. That's the head. 
and then you do you do the costume head uh, you know uh, eyes and whatever and then and then there's a little bit of the body left and then there's arms and legs and that was every character had that was a whole the whole world any any character in the comics had this kind of weird egg egg body you know well i liked iron man probably the best i wasn't a huge superhero guy of course i read them all and and traded with all my friends and all that sort of thing there was something about the armor of iron man and knowing that there was a human inside so it was kind of this hybrid person and i loved um I, of course spider-man briefly uh the fly was i think there was only three or four issues of that the human fly i think they called it but uh the my favorite thing to read was probably creepy and eerie because it was a short story because i didn't have much attention span obviously but you'd start the story things would happen and then you would have a resolution and i really like that it's not like i had to keep up with all these different comics and all these serials and you had to make sure you got each one what happened last month i need to go back and look so to me creepy and eerie were just these stories that were short and i did i had this kind of macabre weird sense and it was i just really liked that kind of thing so were you into the superhero you know long-term development of everything what did you like well, I was early on, but again, you know, that if 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 you were uh, a kid in the early '60s, that was a new thing, you know, the Mary Marvel Marching Society, the whole the whole thing. That was that was Stan Lee's mm, gimmick, if you would. You know, it was sort of like he he understood that oh, there are all these kids out there that are reading these comics and 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 college kids too that was a big thing all these these young young people reading comics one you can get them hooked into comics uh by continuing it's a serial thing it's like what's happening next month what's happening uh with these characters and then he started overlapping the characters uh, oh bringing bringing spider-man into the fantastic four book and so it was pure genius it was like well oh geez well I need to see what hap- what's happening with Spider-Man in the Fantastic Four, even if I don't like the Fantastic Four. So it was, it was that kind of thing. And so, yeah, you got into it and you actually, it's very much like today when you see, you see a, a, a series on HBO and you go, oh, now the series, I have to wait to see what's happening. You know, it's the, it, he did it. He did it in 1963, you know, in 64. And he was young. He was probably maybe 30 or just over the age of 30. So he yeah. was really yeah. good at figuring out. He was like um, Barnum and Bailey. Yeah. Uh, a sucker is born every minute. You know, how do we separate these kids from their money? Right. And they, they sure separated my money from me, what little I had. Oh yeah, no, that, that's right. And it, it what's it, it, it the uh, again back in those days, the, parents. My dad, of course, liked comics, but generally, parents thought they were horrible, evil kind of things. Uh, that they the stumped your reading, gave you 
bad ideas about all kinds of things, you know. So, so, um, when there's actually a stack of comics appearing in your bedroom and then another stack of comics appearing in your bedroom and you're trying to, your whole closet is full of them. And then it's like, what, what's happening here? You know, these things, these things keep appearing and they're now all of a sudden the whole bedroom is full of comics. And, and so that, you know, that's, that was alarming for a lot of, a lot of uh, parents, I think. We had a neighbor that had a son probably 10 years older than I was, and he had this huge stack in his closet, just exactly the way you described it, and it was Cartoons Magazine, and uh, there were two versions of that, but it was all about, okay, I, I was living in a town of 700, Billings, Missouri, in the middle of nowhere in the Ozark Mountains, and Cartoons Magazine, and I'm blanking on the name of the other one, but it was all about the drag race culture in California and surfing. And I was absolutely fascinated by that. I had no idea what anybody was saying in these magazines and the story, and they were talking about things so foreign to me, but the pictures were incredible. The stories I could follow along, I just didn't know the vocabulary of a drag racer or a surfer. And, oh, man, I'd, I'd give a million dollars if I could <laughs> look through that stack of magazines again and just and look at that, and maybe I could figure out some of it now. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and, and that's what people didn't realize then. And maybe they don't even realize this now. It, it's, they're, they're great tools, these, these comics. They're great tools for learning. I, I, I uh, early on read a lot of Classics Illustrated, and I can still remember Oh my gosh, those were fantastic. They're fantastic, and and you look at them, and some there were some there was some good art, some of it wasn't so good. But I remember, you know, Julius Caesar. I was drawing, I was drawing uh, Roman soldiers, and 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 looking looking at the costuming, and and I remember one uh, one classic illustrated on World War II, and oh oh, that was the first time I ever. I mean, my dad had told me about some things about it. But that was the first time I ever, I looked at that and there was a drawing in there. It's, I can see it to this day. There was a drawing in there of uh, some of the atrocities that the Nazis had had, had uh, perpetrated. And there was a guy in a tank. The drawing was dynamic. It was, it was a, a tank full of frozen water. The dialogue was, I think it's the, the word balloon said, kill me, please. And it was basically the Nazis wanted to see how long a person could last in a frozen body of water. Basically, they filled a, an old tank, uh, uh, you know, Tiger tank or not, or not a Tiger tank, but some other kind of tank, probably Panzer tank, full of frozen water. And and then um, see, you know, that and 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 you just go, wow. And I was intrigued by that, so. I, you know, I, I would go to the college library and read more about uh, read more about World War II and the atrocities and the Holocaust and all that kind of thing. So, oh, my dad tricked me into reading great literature in the form of a comic book, which, as you mentioned, Classics Illustrated. I loved them. I loved the pictures. I still I could sit down and draw half of the Gulliver's Travels, <laughs> Classics Illustrated. And that made me later in my life want to read those books 
because I'm thinking like, wow, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I know what Tale of Two Cities is about, but I read it, you know, 10 years ago when I was a little kid. So I remember reading it again and being fascinated about how well they did, you know, taking this fabulous book of hundreds of pages and knocking it down into 30 or 40. Exactly. And then, and, and that was actually the first time I saw, you know, you'd read something like Treasure Island or something, and then you'd go, well, yeah, what, what, what's the book like? And then, and I found a version, the, the, an early version that had the, the N.C. Wyeth. The payoff for you and I is that we would read the illustrated, classics illustrated version first, grow up a little bit and say, hmm, I wonder what the real thing is like. And then boom, you open it up and there's N.C. Wyeth paintings. Right. And I, and I don't know that uh, um, I, the N.C. Wyeth paintings in those days weren't being highly circulated until they reissued that those 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 editions so it may have been somebody i uh they were they were reproduced uh, many times with different illustrators it may have been somebody like frank godwin or somebody else that was really wonderful one still wonderful paintings but uh in some of these things but but uh when you did see see one that had an nc wyeth it was like heads above you know anything else after high school, I decided, well, uh, I, I'm going to go to art school. And I had a couple of choices in high school. I was going to be, <clears throat> I was going to be uh, a lawyer or I was going to be an artist, <laughs> which is like, and a lot of people think, well, what, what? And, yeah, but I was on the debate team in high school. I, I, I did some acting in school plays. I did speech tournaments. And I liked, it's a strange thing, but it, the more I do research on that, it's a lot of, a lot of shyer or maybe quieter people like that, that world, right? Of, of they're, they're quiet and, and reserved uh, in real life, but yet you can get up in front of a crowd and turn, turn something on. And uh, a lot of my friends out of high school went on to be lawyers or politicians or who knows, act, maybe some actually wound up doing some kind of acting. But the other side of that was I uh, liked art, and I wanted to do that. And I, again, I wanted to be different. So I went to an art school in um, Denver, Colorado, little little place called Rocky Mountain School of Art. And in that art school, one reason I went was it was run by a guy named Phil Steele. And Phil Steele uh, had participated in the funny papers, the comics. Uh, he, he had some of his own small strips he had done, as I remember, and he had ghosted a lot for Roy Crane and uh, on Captain Easy. Uh, and so he really knew his stuff. And I thought, oh, boy, here's a school that I can go and I can learn comics. Well, it turns out it was a commercial art school. They did have, they did have a lot of drawing. They did have a lot of uh, advertising art, uh, some illustration. They had a little smattering of everything. But the comics themselves weren't really a class. Now, a friend of mine, a guy that I met there, became a good friend over the years, he was into comics. 
and he was a little bit older than me. He had been in the Navy, and so he was, I was just 17 when I started school there, and, and uh, 18, 17, 18, and he had been you know, collecting comics for a little bit longer than me, and and he was in contact with a, uh, a woman named Marie Severin, and Marie Severin was a famous colorist for the EC Comics, and later had become a not just a colorist, but a, a really fine penciler, and I think maybe sometimes she inked her own work. I can't remember uh, for Marvel, but his contact with Marie Severin was, you know, sporadic. But it was enough to find out that her brother John Severin had moved to Denver, and this is where that connection with. Uh, getting a comic book artist to come over and, and teach at that Rocky Mountain School of Art started. And first, John Severin, he was just like, no, I don't want to, no, I'm not doing any teaching. I'm not doing that. And Kevin was pretty persuasive, my friend. And he, uh, he got him over there. And he taught a couple of classes in, in comic book. He uh, wasn't particularly a good teacher. <laughs> he showed his work and everybody was like, "Wow, yeah, but, but he, he, he was, he was uh, smart in, in his storytelling ability. And that's, that's where I really started doing some, some actual pages of comics and thought, Oh, I'm, I'm developing a portfolio. No, there were two things that happened that took me away from that direction. One, I, um, uh, there was a comic convention in, in New York. And this was one of the early, as they call them, Phil Suling comics, uh, comic conventions, but, you know, very early comic convention. And uh, I think it was the Commodore Hotel at the time above Grand Central Station. And that was, well, it, it was small, but it was a, it was a room that uh, basically a big ballroom with little side rooms. So I went there and I, and I, um, I took my portfolio. Maybe I, I probably had maybe 10, 10 uh, inked comic pages, different stories that I'd done in class. And I showed them, they were reviewing portfolios and I showed them to uh, one of the Marvel guys sitting there. I think it may have been Vince Coletta who, Who's inking? I never did like, <laughs> to be honest with you, but it, that's it just luck of the draw. I got him, and and he was looking at the work. He said, "Well, this is okay. This is okay, but you know, might be good if you go to art school." I'm going, "Oh, I just went to art school. What are you talking about? I just took, a, you know, I wasn't quite finished, but I'm I'm in art school. What are you talking about?" And uh, and I thought, "Well, okay, that's that's you know, that's somebody's opinion." And and in a in a in a room. Um, I walked in and I'm going, oh, who's this? And I recognized the work and it was Jeff Jones. And he's sitting in a table in this quiet little room by himself with all this beautiful work all around the, uh, uh, the walls. I mean, it had, it had uh, work from National Lampoon, his Idol series. It had... It had, uh, oh gosh, book covers, paintings, 
not comic book work. There was some comic book work, but it, but, and I'm going, wow, this is really cool stuff. This is like, this is this is amazing. And I saw how large they were. He worked, he worked many of these, especially the book cover pieces were pretty big. And it was just like an eye opener, looking at it, looking at it. And then I talked to to Jeff for a while, and. And, and I've told this to, to different people before, but it was just a, just this moment like a light bulb went on. And I said, well, what, you know, t- could you tell me a little bit about what, what it's like working in comics, being a comic book artist? And he kind of looked at me and had this kind of, you know, very quiet way about him. And he said, I'm, I'm not a comic book artist. And I go, well, yeah, but you got comics, <laughs> you know, you, there's, they're on the wall. There's, there's your storytelling. He goes, no, I'm, I'm I'm a, I'm a painter. I'm, I'm, that's, that's, that's the way I look at, I, I just look at my, my work. I'm, I'm a, I'm an artist, you know, that's, he described himself that way. And I thought, wow, that's, that's different. I, I like, and I, I walked away from that. It was a short conversation and he was very, very generous with his time and, 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 and wonderful to see that work. But I walked away from that. Like somebody had just said, Hey, you don't have to be, you don't have to do comics. This is not, uh, this is, this is one Avenue for you. And, but look at all the other stuff that was on that wall from this one guy. And that was a big eye opener. And then the second thing I went back to, back to uh, Rocky mountain and uh, talked to John Severin. And, and we, he was looking at some other work I'd done and he goes, why do you want to do comics? And I said, well, I love reading him. I, yeah, but he goes, why do you want to do comics? Because he looked at some of my paintings and he looked at some of my illustration work. And he goes, you should be an illustrator. And he was pretty blunt. He goes, you're not that good at the sequential stuff. And <laughs> in those days, I wasn't. I, I got better at it uh, doing a lot of storyboards later and, and, and the storytelling aspect. But I really wasn't that good at it in those days. But there was an, it was another really, really honest opinion but it was informed from my other work. And so that was, that was actually, those two moments were like, yeah, boy. And I'm almost through school. So there was, uh, there was a period of time when I stayed in Denver. And then I decided, you know, I, uh, Denver's not an illustration town. In those days, it wasn't. There were some ad agencies, but mostly what they said you could wind up doing was working, doing the... Uh, Mm, illustrations for, uh, you know, a furniture company, be the layout artist doing black and white marker lay or line and wash things for the newspaper. Or every once in a while you could, you could maybe do, do something for, uh, an ad for some real estate firm, but they, it was not an illustration town. So I, once again, I thought, well, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I mean, there's, there was a little period of some other, other things that I was, you know, that I went through there in, in, in Denver. Uh, so I, I didn't make this decision right away, but, but, uh, I did, um, uh, decide to go back to school and I went and decided, well, I could either go down to Los Angeles to the art, to art center and, or I could go, cause I didn't want to go East uh, and I was tired of cold weather and I, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to. I'm going to go to California. And, and uh, so I decided to go to San Francisco to the Academy of Art College. It wasn't a university in those days. And, and so that's, that was sort of the, the, the start of, of 
uh, really, really delving into the world of illustration and, and getting, getting my, my eyes open to, oh man, there's a whole world out here way beyond comics. Comics was very narrow and, and over the years talking to a lot of comic, uh, guys, especially some of the older ones, they all wanted to be illustrators. That was their, they all want, all wanted to be in the slick magazines, you know, the women's magazines, uh, the Saturday evening post, the, that was where they started. And they just happened to wind up doing comics and it kind of stuck with them or they got pigeonholed in that world or, or they were just really good at it. So it was, it was, it wasn't particularly their, their first choice. And, um, so that was, that was, a that was sort of the, the bridge between, uh, the world of wanting to be a comic book artist and becoming an, an illustrator. Well, that's a powerful story because you've just described and defined a truly seminal experience, which just simply means there was a moment in time where you had this, with, uh, this conversation with Jeff Jones, now referred to as Jeffrey Catherine Jones. You saw the work, you were enamored with the work. You had this conversation. Jeff said, I'm an artist. I'm not a comic artist. And you said you turned around and thought, okay, now I have other options and things to think about. You went to John Severin, one of my favorite cracked artists. And he worked for Mad for a while, and then I think Cracked kind of grabbed him and said, "No, you're ours." And uh, so he's a, a hero of mine, also. And so you had some informed guidance, and of course, you're an artist, and you have your own <laughs> you you have your own rebellious uh, points of your personality. But you really listened to again. I, I will call it informed guidance, and that helped you figure out, well, maybe there's other things on earth that I'm not seeing or not aware of or not thinking about. So, uh, kudos to you for being really open and, uh, and intelligent at a very young age and seeing all these random elements that you can corral and point yourself in a little bit slightly different direction, which was illustration. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, yeah, but you, you yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 uh, and there was one, there was one other moment, and I won't dwell on it, but there was another thing that happened, and it was difficult. And what happened was, you know, I was nineteen, and uh, my sister was two years older than me, and she had gotten married to a nice guy named Greg, and. Uh, they were going off on a fishing trip and they were in a car in front of my parents. My parents were driving their car behind them to go off on a camping fishing trip. Um, kind of a rainy road, uh, rainy day, uh, tanker truck, jackknifed in front of them and killed him. Killed my sister and her husband. That... Um, mm, that was a moment in time when, you know, you go through a lot of things, a lot of, a lot of, you know, you go through grief, you go through shock, you go, you know, on 
your parents never really recover from that kind of thing. But for me, it was a moment of, wow, not going to be here that long. You know, maybe I'm not going to be here that long. Uh, when you're 19, you think you're going to live forever, you know, and then all of a sudden you, you see a 22 year old sister go boom, disappear. And it's a moment where you go, wow, that's, that's, that's something that is, is like, uh, well, and my, my time may be limited or, and then you start thinking, Wow, even if even if I have X amount of time, I should really push this thing. I should I should move faster. I should I should be mm, mm, not 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 I it, it didn't I didn't all of a sudden get maturity, I'll tell you that. But I got I got some kind of uh uh jolt that has stayed with me to this very day. And it was, it was the idea that, that, well, you know, I don't want to waste time. And so I, I, there were, there was certainly, it wasn't like I was a party guy or that kind of thing, but I didn't even want to do that stuff that much. I, and, and, and if I did, I, it was very limited. Uh, I wanted to work and I knew that I had to really work hard. And that was, that was, it's a driving thing that stays with me. Some people use it, use that kind of tragedy in a lot of different ways. You know, they change their life or they don't, or they just kind of ignore it away. Um, I didn't, I had no choice. It was just there. It's still there. So you just knew you needed to move forward now. It, it's not like, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. Oh, I'll get there eventually. You, you started this plan of, okay, I, I need to get on my horse and ride. I got to do it. Yeah, exactly. I, and, and, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I thought about it all the time, you know, I, I mean, I, and it took me a while. I mean, I've never done any, anything like any therapy or anything. It's just, I just kind of came to this conclusion after a while that, you know, why am I, why am I driven all of a sudden? What is this thing? And I, I realized that's what it is. And, and, and I thought, well, okay. I accepted it. That's that's, and so when I went to art school in San Francisco, I I was like, well, I I worked hard. I mean, I was like every class I wanted it. If I was a little bit different attitude than than the than than the time uh, I spent at at Rocky Mountain, and I was I was spending time learning how to draw better. I was spending time researching, uh, spending. Just lots, lots of of uh, hours um, observing um, and reading about illustrators and painters, and and just uh, there was a great. Uh, I remember there was a great store, and it was down in the Tenderloin area of San Francisco, on Turk Street, and it was called McDonald's Bookstore, and I would spend, I mean, just hours in that store, and just digging it was like a gold mine kind of and it actually was almost like a mine because it did have different levels and these magazines uh, and books would just almost be falling on the people you know like they were like little trails it was it was unbelievable it was it was a fire trap <laughs> what, it was. what were you searching for 
What did you think you were going to find or hope you would find? Well, I was, I was searching for old magazines that had illustration in them. And I found them. I found, oh my gosh. Like Ladies Home Journal with uh, Mark and Bernie and Bob Peake and I, all those I found, guys? I found a lot of that. I found, I, well, I mean, I knew, I knew from, you know, my parents had Saturday Evening Post and they had some other, and and I had a, I had a couple of aunts that kept every Ladies Home Journal and, every, you know, filled their basement with those kind of magazines. I knew, knew those magazines existed and I was, I was constantly searching for those, but I, but what I discovered other things, and I discovered things like Flying Magazine, and and that's when I first saw Baron Story's work was in Flying Magazine, and 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 he did these beautiful pen and ink things that uh, were of planes, and then I saw some other work that he had done that had motorcycles, and you know it was just like things that were, and I knew of Baron Story, but I didn't know I didn't know of his history. And, and that, you know, that it was kind of like going back a little bit. And, 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 uh, I discovered I was a, a huge fan of Ken Dallison. And, and, uh, so I discovered all the car and driver, uh, magazines that he had, uh, done beautiful illustrations in. And I, I started emulating him. I started, I, um, I would go back to the school and during, clothes figure, uh, drawing classes. And, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, I would, I would, where everybody else was sitting there drawing with their vine charcoal and trying to render the figure, I would bring in my pen and ink and do drawings of the figure and with, with ink wash and, and like Ken Dallison would have. And, I would uh, sit next to them, close in to the model, and and uh, and do these drawings, and and that, so that gave me this this amazing natural line that I developed. That uh, to this day, I I still don't. I think the only reason it 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 really got better and uh, high quality really fast was drawing from the model with that with that pen and ink was was like making those decisions, dipping my my pen nib into the ink. And, and, and making a line and making another correction line. And, um, it was, uh, so then when I did my illustration work, it was, it was easy. It was just, it was like muscle memory is what it was. You did illustration for a long time. You're still doing it a little bit here and there. I think when did the desire to do paintings that functioned as wall art come along because illustration has a function. It has a job to do. Usually it is clarifying or enhancing text or a story or a book or something. So you decided at some point, I want to make pictures that stand completely by themselves with no narration. You're not enhancing another product. They live on their own and they hang on the wall. When did that happen? Was it gradual? Yeah, it was it was pretty much an organic, uh, gradual thing because uh, that pen and ink work that I was doing, I was getting jobs, but I wasn't getting the kind of jobs I wanted. And I saw some friends of mine, different friends that were painting, not necessarily in oils, but they were painting in acrylic and other things. A little bit uh, more substantial work, I guess, if you want to call it. Uh, and so 
I started painting. I said, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to oil paint because I knew how to, to manipulate oils. Some I'd taken some classes and I painted a few things. So that's what I started doing. I started using oils. And so at that point, um, early on, actually, there were different jobs that I got using oil paint for the illustration jobs, but people wanted to keep or buy the originals. And then I thought, huh, this is interesting. Uh, so at many times it would be maybe a corporation that would buy the originals or, or there'd be an individual or there'd be somebody at an agency that would say, Hey, you remember that job you did for, I'd like to buy that piece. And that put a thought in my head, right? <laughs> I thought, huh, this is interesting. People, people want that work, uh, to hang on their wall. And that was kind of that, that moment. And then there were, there were some other, other illustrators at the time that I kept researching and cause I, I'm a real student of illustration history and I looked at what they wanted to do, you know, and how they, they progressed with their career and many of them, including the great NC Wyeth, they wanted to paint and I'm going, Oh yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. And so the more work I did as, as an illustrator, um, the more I got into this idea that, well, you know, I'd, I'd like to show in show in galleries, but I didn't know how to get into galleries. I didn't have any idea, and uh, so I did. I didn't. I didn't really think about it that much because I was really, really busy as an illustrator. So I, I, but I did start doing a series of paintings. I loved the work of David Levine. Not, I, I liked his caricature work, which was wonderful, right? His illustration work. What I really liked was his watercolors and pastel work he did of Coney Island. And they were beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous, moody paintings of, of the roller coasters and the, uh, some of the people on the beach and such. And that was like, oh, yeah. And I was close to... to uh, I'd been to Coney Island and I liked it there, but I was close also to in San Francisco. It's close to Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, and and in those days it was still old. They hadn't, as I call it, Disneyfied it yet. You know, they hadn't put in new thing, rides, and it was still kind of an old boardwalk that was a little bit run down, a little bit seedy. And so I'd go down there and I'd, I'd do some drawings and I'd take a lot of photographs. And I started doing some different paintings of boardwalk and and uh mostly from the beach view back of the boardwalk but sometimes i would walk around the boardwalk and and areas close to it and so i did a a a small small series of paintings just on my own just with nothing in mind except to just just mm, just have fun with it what happened and this happened uh, uh, again and again in my career, uh, starting out as a, as a, as a gallery painter. And I, you know, so it's a very unorthodox way to, to get into galleries. Uh, I, I never, I never knocked on a gallery door. It all came through my illustration work. So I was doing a, in San Francisco, I was doing a uh, series of, not necessarily every month, but uh, a lot of times I would do a, uh, uh, several illustrations, sometimes a cover for a little magazine there called California Lawyer Magazine. And California Lawyer was just a, you know, it was basically a, 
uh, specific magazine that went to lawyers. Nobody else would want to read that stuff, but they wanted illustration. And the editor of that magazine was a guy named Thomas Reynolds, and he he liked my um, liked my work that I did for for the magazine. And at one point, he came up to visit me, and uh, in Marin County in uh, San Anselmo, where we lived. And he came by my studio, and he saw some of the paintings that I'd done of Santa Cruz. And he said, "Oh, I'd, oh, I'd like to buy one of these." And I said, "They're not for sale." In those days, I was. I just was I I just didn't want to sell them. I they I, they were kind they were few that I'd done and they were kind of precious to me in that way. And he said, "Oh, geez." And so we did some did some more work together and and he came up again to visit and said, "Oh, you want to sell me one of those paintings?" And I said, "I'm not really. I haven't done a lot lately." So then the third time I talked to him about that, he called up and said, Hey, Francis, I'm opening up a gallery in San Francisco, little gallery and, uh, in, the, in the Fillmore District, just small little gallery, but I want to give you a one-man show there. And then he goes, then I could buy one of your paintings. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> I've never heard that story, but that's really good. So the debate guy from high school was going up against a lawyer, and you win. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you won that one. I didn't know he. I didn't know he was going to open up a gallery, but he did. And and uh, and I thought, well, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll do this. And and in those days, and it's a, this is in those days, I worked on illustration. My illustrations, I, I it didn't cost me much to produce an illustration. You know, and, and, and the actual the actual uh, oh materials that I used it it was it was fairly thin paint. Not and it was uh, illustration board that I could uh, really nice illustration board, but I could use both sides of the illustration board. You know, I could split it in half, and and so I I, I was economically I was it was it was great. I I didn't use much uh, in terms of materials, um, but I thought, oh man, now I'm going to have to actually have a different kind of thing to paint on. So I would go dumpster diving sometimes to get wood to paint on. I'd do anything because I wasn't making any, I didn't think I was going to make any money at this gallery thing. So I didn't want to put out a lot of expense, right? I was going, okay, I got to keep this, do this on the cheap because I, you know, so, uh, I was doing that kind of thing for the first couple of shows and, uh, the response was really good. You know, it was like, wow, all of a sudden I'm selling some paintings. Um, did your paintings for galleries, look similar to your illustrations or was it a completely different world, a different look? It was similar. It was similar, but it was, what it was, was a little bit softer, a little bit more impressionistic, a little bit more atmospheric. Cause I didn't have to worry. The thing that I didn't, that, that, that appealed to me right away was that I didn't have to worry about what it looked like in reproduction. That was the thing that it took that, that kind of monkey off your back. Of oh that you know that color needs to be brighter and that color needs to be darker because it won't reproduce. That was one thing, and so that 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 way I could do things that you know I could feather the edges of of the of the paint. I could oh I could use colors that were real close in value that were 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 very very subtle. I could use four or five different kinds of white right next to each other. That would only really be be 
show up to the human eye uh, in, in viewed in person, not not in reproduction. Oh, I'm so glad you put it that way because instead of the the client actually being a printed page, your client was the human eye and the human brain working together. So the perceptions of those two things were your client not trying to compensate for someone printing something on inferior paper or what have you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's it. Exactly. And, 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 and it, it was liberating. It just, I, I just thought, Oh, that's, that's cool. Now the, the one, the opposite side of that was, well, you had people come up to you going, who are you? What, why should we, why should we pay money for your artwork? Uh, because I was, I didn't ask uh, a high price for my paintings in those days, but I was I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna lose money on them either, and I I didn't feel like hey I want to start uh, from ground zero. I've been painting for a long time now as an illustrator. I don't want to be um, just all of a sudden going well now I'm giving these things away, and so I had to I had to explain my experience, and some people bought it. And uh, that, hey, illustration was legitimate and that 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 gave you uh, a legitimate background. Some people were like, well, that's just illustration. You know, there was still a heavy, heavy prejudice in those days about about if you were an illustrator, you weren't an artist. And the old joke is you were just a mere illustrator. A a mere illustrator. Yes, a a mere mere (laughs) illustrator. But I, yeah, I, I, that, that was, uh, um, but I would always push back against that. You know, I, I would, that's, that's just like, oh, geez. Yeah. It's like, be quiet and look at the wall. Do you like it? Then who cares where you came from or what you did, or if you were an illustrator or a, or a house painter, you know, you look at the image. If you like it, there you go. But I understand there's all kinds of politics involved. That's right. And then, and it, and mostly that comes from other artists. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, put a lot of uh, bad vibes out there to the fine art trained people of the world. But I, it comes from that world of, of, and I've had, I've had different painters over the years say, you know, my paintings really aren't selling too much. I think I'll try that illustration thing that you do. And I'm going, huh? Okay, go, go ahead. Yeah, go, go right for it. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy yourself. Well, there's been a few times when I've seen you paint in front of students. Well, many times, but a few times you will be working away and we're just agog at what you're doing. And you use a lot of paint when you make an image and it's really thick, really juicy. And at some point you'll kind of stop and you'll turn to the students and you'll say, well, I thought I was getting somewhere and I kind of did this little thing here and over here, but now it looks mannered. And at that point, you always take out your driver's license or a credit card or you'll tear a piece of cardboard and you'll just slowly start scraping across and smearing everything together. So tell me what it means in your mind when you say, well, it looks mannered. And that's when you start scraping. For me, mannered, it, it's it it's like it's the idea that I'm looking at my reference. I'm going, oh, here's this detail. I'm putting that detail in. Oh, here's this detail. I'm putting that detail in. 
one that's one of the problems. You, if you're using any kind of reference, you start. Everybody does. You have a tendency to start copying the reference, especially if it's good reference. Well, I don't want to do that, and so that's one thing. And then the other thing is, it's it starts feeling like I'm blending. Uh, I'm not applying paint. I'm blending paint, or I'm tinting with the paint, or I'm I'm sort of smooshing the paint around to slowly get to somewhere. It 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 starts lacking energy, and then so it's not as perhaps deliberate as you intend it to be. Right. It well. It 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 feels like oh, it it's the difference between between. Uh, being boring and being uh, interesting. That's really the, the, you know, it's, that's extreme, but it, 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 if it starts heading toward that, oh, this painting is going to put you to sleep kind of thing. Then I, Does it I, happen on all paintings? Do you just as a human being kind of get into a mode and then you have to look at it and say, whoops, I, I did it again. So now I've got to get that energy back into it. That's a good question because yeah, <laughs> you know, they, it, it's not, it's it, it, when I'm doing what, a demo. What are you, a human? <laughs> yeah. When, when I'm doing a demo, uh, it, it's a funny thing because, you know, somebody's seen either me paint for the first time or, or you know, every once in a while somebody sees me paint and they've seen me paint several times, but not, not every day like I do. And so what, what happens is, uh, yeah, almost there's, there's, there's what I call the, um, uh, the beginning and everybody loves the beginning of a painting. You know, you're, uh, you're blocking in things and it just looks exciting. And there's some drips that happen and there's some, all of the values start, start coming together. And then you reach the ugly phase and the ugly phase is when all that, it's just like, Oh, the colors look crappy. The, the value pattern is lost. There's, there's the, the mannered look right and and all of that comes together to to go mm, i'm going to take a break and then you take a break and you come back and it happens almost every painting but is that a fun and exciting time in a way it yeah it it, it well it's a it's it can be frustrating because it's like oh this thing isn't coming up coming but it it's almost like this shot of adrenaline that you you need to not only put into the painting but put into yourself again and so that's where that that moment of and it can be yeah scraping it down it can be i've i've thrown a jar of turpentine at it i mean not like the actual jar right but they just slosh slosh the turpentine and let it just bleh, just drip and and, and wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. I kind of own studio tantrums. Are you uh, <laughs> do you ever have studio tantrums? You can tell me. I won't tell anybody. I've had a few. Yes, I've had a few. Not not so many anymore because I, I had a tendency to break things in the past. And, and, uh, but I tell this story to, to people that, that I had this really great uh, uh, drafting chair and really nice, expensive. You know, wonderful. Goes up and down and back and forth, and it's so comfortable. And, and one day I'm talking to, I think it was an art director. Uh, because and they're like having me do these changes and they're stupid changes and they're just the worst things and they're and they need it right away and I and my you know you, you, the tension builds between the conversation and I finally go okay I'll get it done for you and then of course I just I look around and I grab my 
wonderful drafting chair and I have a cement floor and it has radiant heat in it. It's really nice. It's, it's, uh, keeps me warm during the winter and I pull the drafting chair up and I'm like, I'm kind of like the incredible Hulk at that moment. And I lift it up really high and I slam it down on the, on the cement floor and just thinking, yeah, okay, that'll release some tension. Well, I, I break the metal on it. I, I, I slammed it so hard. It's like, it's like one of those, those moments, you know, that, Oh, Hey, uh, this car fell on somebody. You, you, you have the energy at that moment to lift that car up. You know, those, the, well, I, I had the energy to break the metal on the, on my drafting chair. Did you feel better? No, I felt stupid because I, I go, that was expensive. Oh God. You know, so I still have it in the, in the, in the corner behind me. I have that drafting. It doesn't work anymore because it's broken. And it never will work, uh, but um, I, it reminds me. And I've done a few other things. I even before that, I would I would do things like drive a pencil through my draft my drawing my drafting table. <laughs> you know, I'd hit it so hard and direct that kind of thing. Or or I, but basically, what I do the last time, which was a long time ago now, but I I, I would look around. You know, I'd look left, right, and I go. No, I don't want to throw that. No, no, no. And then if I throw it over there, I have to. So I, so I, I would find something where I, I don't create a mess, and I also don't destroy something that's valuable. Francis, let's do this. Let's, um, let's ask all the listeners that have ever had a studio tantrum to raise their hand. Wow, look at that. That's a lot of you out there, <laughs> man. There's a lot of hands going up. I see in Radio Land out there. <laughs> So what do you do now? So now, now you don't want to break things and, and uh, cost money. Do you go drink coffee or play with the dog or run around the block? What do you do? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't drink coffee. Uh, it would give me more. I, I only drink coffee one time in the morning. That's it. But uh, unless I'm doing some kind of all-nighter thing. But, but, but I, I try to limit that these days too. But the thing, that, the thing that's, in, mm, yeah, th- that's the important thing is to just take a break from it. You just walk out, just walk, out. close the door, just walk out. And, and I, I think that's, that's, that's the best, the best uh, solution. Uh, things look better uh, either 15 minutes later or the next day. You know. The painter Titian supposedly said, any painting will paint itself if you turn it to the wall long enough. What do you think of that? Possibly. I, if I, if I, or, or you don't care about it. If you turn, if, if I turn a painting to the wall, that's usually means it's going to be painted over. <laughs> that, that's if I, okay. if I stop looking at it, then that's it. It's, it's done. And that, that's the, I, but I do turn them toward the wall or, or I, I put them on the floor and I kind of step on them, whatever, you know, that's my, 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 you know, my Man, way. You're really passive aggressive. I am. Man. I can't well, be. <laughs> I was just thinking Titian was saying to himself, I'll take a break from this painting. I'll come back to it and I'll see the answer. So, right. I, yeah. I, yeah. I understood what you, I, <laughs> what you were saying, but I, I, yeah, I, the, it's the idea that, uh, it, um, that, that energy, that little bit of, of, well, am I going to get through this? What do I do? That little bit of, anticipation or that little bit of not knowing is, is a good thing. It really is because it's, it's the idea that if, if you go into your studio and you're painting on a piece of art and you're trying to, to make it, uh, 
just perfect and 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 everything's coming out so wonderfully and every and you 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 go through all the steps you go through to make to me that's it's going to lack a certain energy from 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 the way I do artwork now everybody's different you know but but for me it takes that little bit of of either frustration or or anticipation of me maybe I'm going to just screw this one up this but oh how do I what do I do here what what and that that little bit of excitement is, like I said before, an adrenaline pump into your head somehow, uh, into your brain, and into your into your hands, and 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 you go, okay, now I got to do something. Well, now I got to, uh, what am I going to do? And it it invigorates uh, 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 the surface of the painting in some way. Well, you're changing your level of consciousness. Literally, because I know a lot of times I'll be working on a painting and I'll work and work and work and then I'll stop and I'll think, I haven't done anything in an hour. I'm moving my hand and moving paint around, making stupid decisions, but I'm not, I'm not enhancing the image. Uh, if there's a problem, I'm not fixing it. I'm just wasting time. So boom, you have to click something in your brain and actually start painting again it, it's really easy to get lulled into doing nothing that's a great point it's a great point it, because it's it is it, it's sort of this this business of of um uh, yeah are what 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 have you done here and sometimes sometimes that's okay sometimes it's okay to just kind of go back and forth you're sort of resting i couldn't be at that kind of high level of intensity all the time about a, i just can't do it um, when, um, and it's not necessary no. on a painting to be, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, grunt work sometimes, you know, filling in the canvas just to get the, the, the undertone. Well, there's, yeah, there's that well, well, covered. Right. And, and my wife, Sue, who's a, who's a great artist, uh, in her own right, uh, will come in and go, well, you're moving so slow on this thing. What I've, I've seen you just paint like crazy and you get these done really fast. And I said, you know, that's like a fast burnout. I'm, I can't work that intensely all the time. I just can't do it. That's a, that's a, that's a, like a high speed that'll burn the gears out really fast if you stay at that high speed. So I, I save that high speed and, and to you know, just moments when I need it. You paint a lot of different subject matters. So does subject matter mean anything to you or it's just another way to make a picture? Oh, it, well, I mean, that, that's a, uh, I mean, that's an interesting, uh, question just because it, it really stems from the idea of, of, as an illustrator, I painted everything. And so, I mean, you, you could, you could name most things and I'd probably painted it, uh, not everything, but a good, a good chunk of everything. Uh, and that, that includes all kinds of still life, all kinds of landscape, all kinds of vehicles, all kinds of you know, it goes on and on and on and on and, and, uh, all, all, all different, different, uh, ethnic types of people and so on. Um, so I'm interested in a lot of things that, that made me curious. And it also made, I think being, being an illustrator makes you, uh, somewhat fearless about, about tackling different subject matter and where, uh, so, so being identified as, well, Hey, you're a landscape painter. It's like, oh, no, I, I paint landscape, but I don't, that's, I'm not a landscape painter. 
So I always thought, well, I'm, I'm going to try different things. The, the subject matter that I paint is usually, usually the, the, the subject matter that I like uh, seeing or, in, or I enjoy the shapes or I enjoy the color or it's something that uh, many times is historical or nostalgic. I take architecture, for instance. I don't paint new buildings. I paint older buildings. I paint buildings from the turn of the century or, or the Art Deco period. Because I like that design, I don't like contemporary buildings at all. I don't. I don't care. So again, it goes back to shape. You like the shape of those architectural features. I like that, and I also like just, uh, uh, yeah, because they, there was there, they were created by artists basically. I mean, they, you know, these 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 designers of these buildings and the, the engineers and everybody. It was they were they were beautiful pieces of art in themselves, and it's the same with the bridges that I paint, old bridges. The same with if I put a car in a painting, I'll put an old car in a painting, or it's or some of some of the subject matter. Certainly, the Western subject matter that I paint is is uh, it's not it's not the New West. It's not I don't put cars or in in the subject matter. I I it's it's, it's figures on horseback or uh it's a it's it's certainly of a more romantic uh time or at least the 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 period is is again turn of the century of the last century not not uh, the the 20 uh, 19th through the 20th not the 20th through the 21st but the idea is that um that I'm looking for for imagery that I can do something with, you know, that I that I can that I can I can make my own, not imagery that oh hmm, I see it and then I'm going to try to copy it. I, I'm I'm not interested in that either. I'm not I'm not interested in doing a better job than the photograph is doing. I'm I'm interested in doing something different than the photograph is doing, and so not all subject matter applies to that. Well, and I know that when you are, so you, you travel around and you do your own photography for reference, but the camera is a, it's a distortion machine. Uh, so every photograph, no matter carefully how crafted, it does distort things. And I know you're very conscious of that and you redraw everything by hand to design it so that it fits your design aesthetic and you're not just copying a photograph because you already, like our friend John English always says, I've already got a photograph of it. Why do I need to make another copy of the photograph? What are you going to bring to it? What are you going to do to interject your personality? So how do you do that? What are you thinking when you're redrawing a piece of reference onto a canvas? Well, I mean, sometimes the the reference, yeah, the reference is reference I've I've taken. Uh, sometimes I'll I'll look for historic photography too, because sometimes these buildings don't exist anymore, or or something is is not available to me. So, whatever the source of the the photographs, I look for editing on on a photograph. I look for the things that are the big shapes. I I take away the detail because I just don't. I don't, I don't see detail that well anyway, even, even, you know, when we're, 
when we're over at the Illustration Academy and we're drawing from the from the model. I see a lot of people that can see the turning of the form and the detail. I don't see that. I see these just big shapes. And many times it's hard for me to go beyond that because it's, uh, I want, you know, that's the way I see things. And, and so the paintings I do are, um, that's, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, for shapes. And I, and I very rarely will I use one, one piece of reference. I put, maybe maybe a good five to ten different pieces of reference together to make uh, make my pictures do you think it's more important what you put in a painting or what you leave out mm, that's a that's a that's a, i mean yeah that's that's a that's an interesting question i i um I know, it's both i mean it, i mean it, it, it's a matter of 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 being aware that uh of of what you, uh, the spatial relationships between the different things in the painting and whether you actually need it or whether you, uh, it's a, it's a constant battle because here's an example. I might be painting a, a painting of a, say, let's say a river scene. And I've got a couple of figures on horseback, native American figures on horseback riding through the river. And I've got trees in this scene and I've got some, Mm, leaves or or sagebrush chamisa in the foreground and i've got some clouds and i've got maybe a mountain back there okay so with all those things what am i gonna what am i gonna do and, and so i i start looking and i and i think wow i'd like to paint that chamisa but if i paint that chamisa which is way in the foreground then i'm i'm not looking beyond that i'm, I'm looking at that so i i need to find that focal point that's what I'm, that's my big goal is to say hey I love painting that chamisa, but if I'm I'm going to paint that thing in a different painting, if I'm going to put focus on it, if I'm going to make that the star, so I kind of look at it that way. I, I, I mean, it's it's really that kind of old rule of having breaking it down to three three important elements, no matter what's in it, and saying one's more important and one you know the the, the two others kind of are supporting things. And what you're describing a little bit is what I call the what I tell students is the pepper lecture. And I say, okay, you and I are standing outside in beautiful, bright sunlight, and I have a red pepper in my hand, and you and I are three feet apart. You can observe that pepper, and it may have five or six values on it. It's got a light, a dark, a shadow, a coarse shadow, a highlight, reflected light. Okay, so we're right here three feet apart. If I walk down on the other end of the football field, and I'm... 91 meters away, 100 yards away, you might see one value or two values. You as a painter, as an artist, you can tell me how close or how far away things are by what you called focus or the amount of detail and values. And that's what you're doing. You're putting your mountains in the back. They belong to the sky. Then you have a a middle ground. You've got a foreground. You've got a really close ground is that something that you're obvious well i mean this is a silly question i mean you're obviously very hyper aware of all of those because your your landscapes especially have this enormous feel of space with color and temperature and value oh yeah definitely and and, that, and that's why i really love the southwest in particular because 
you get these uh, these lawn vistas. You know, you get this unobstructed view all the way to 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 you know the horizon, and and so you can. I call that the way background. Yeah, the way back, way back, way back. But I manipulate things too. I make things happen. Some things I've seen in the Southwest, especially, are beautiful sunny day, but then all of a sudden you get a storm moving in in the foreground and makes it dark and makes it uh, or or it's moving in in the background and it makes the background darker than the foreground. You know, it's interesting because then you've got, oh, geez, that foreground's going to come to the to the front. So then you have to go, well, okay, as long as I keep. As long as I keep the background, I can keep get, get darker with it, but I keep it very, very simple and not less detail, then I'm going to, you know, I'll get that effect of a storm happening in the background and light, uh, you know, happening uh, in a specific area in the painting. It, it's cool. I mean, atmospherics uh, play a big part of landscape painting to me. It's sort of like, well, you know, what... And the more you observe it, the more you see the effect of light and shadow on things. It's really, it's, it's, it's endless. That's, and that, that goes back to, you know, you're asking that question of what, what subject matter do you pick? Uh, why do you pick? One of, the, one of the things is picking a subject matter that is more or less endless. Because if you really get into something, you get into something and you're selling paintings that people are interested in, and then there's a limited amount you know, uh, directions you can go with that one subject matter. That's not good. It, it's, it's nice to have a, a, a particular subject matter or subject matters that you can expand on, that you can take in different directions and you can do different things with different times of day, different kind of coloration, different light, different, different shapes. And it still retains a cohesive look to your work. And that's, that's a really important thing to, to think about. Francis, this has been a great conversation from my point of view anyway. And what we need to do now is say goodbye briefly, but then we need to do this again because I think we could have really good, helpful information and get more in-depth to the painting if you'd like to or the history of comics or art because you have a vast knowledge of many things. Would you agree to come back sometime? Oh, you bet, Brent. I mean, I, I've really enjoyed talking about uh, all this stuff. I, it's it's uh, it's fun, and it's also, I mean, you know, it, it's 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 great to be able to not just talk about it, but but in, involve yourself with the idea of of uh, letting other people know uh, what what your thoughts and maybe some of your knowledge and. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just really, it's, it's, I like it. So yeah, I'd be happy to come back anytime. All right. We'll do it again. Thank you.